0: Hello, I'm Jonathan Eder, and welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. This is part two of a conversation with Dr. David Hall on Mary Baker Eddy and the Puritans. Dr. Hall is Bartlett Professor of New England Church History Emeritus at Harvard Divinity School. He is the author of The Puritans, A Transatlantic History. We begin this second segment of our discussion by exploring the issue of predestination in Puritan history and thought and for Mary Baker Eddy. I did want to look at the question of predestination. Um, and first of all, to find out, you know, how significant is that uh, as a theme in Puritanism? It was something that was significant for Mary Baker Eddy and her development um, because it was something that her father in particular emphasized in terms of the family theology. And a, a critical moment in her upbringing was to feel liberated from what she described as the horrible decree. Um, and I, I think she was quoting Calvin when she said that of predestination. It's a great question. So let me just, for the sake of, of
1: uh, your, your audience and maybe for myself, remind everyone that St. Paul in Romans 8 uses the word god predestinated and uh, there isn't a lot of other words and other adjectives or nouns to associate with it so you can read into it what you want but uh, augustine picked up on that in the fourth century when he heard about arguments that we were free to um, decide our own salvation called pelagianism and he reasserted this notion that our being saved was entirely the handiwork of god and then not everybody was going to be saved. So there was a the grand moment of of uh, the end of the times, end of the world happened, and Christ returns in judgment. Some would be of the elect or predestinated to salvation, and others would be forever reprobate or condemned to hell. So when you come to the Puritans, they endorsed this idea. It was in Calvin, and they, they were Calvinists in a general sense, and they endorsed this idea. I would say that... Um, it's quite interesting looking ahead to Eddie for the moment, not looking ahead but aware of her. That the commentators on predestination say this is a joyful doctrine. This is a joyful doctrine because it means that once you're chosen by God, you're never not gonna, you're never going to be unchosen. You're you can count on God's favor, and it sort of gives you a kind of peace. You're not. On some treadmill, this was they thought of Catholicism, put people on a kind of treadmill of having to constantly do things. No treadmill, just uh, enjoy this condition of being saved. And uh, of course, this doesn't do away with anxiety. So they would then say, "Well, it's a mystery whom he has saved. No one knows who God's saved because it won't be revealed until the end times." So let's be hopeful. Let's be hopeful that you're among the saved, and uh, that's called assurance of salvation. And that became a kind of burning question within the Puritan movement, who does or doesn't have assurance of salvation. I think what happens by Eddie's time, or by the 19th century, first of all, there emerged a group of people, liberal Protestants, post-Calvinist Protestants all across the world, but Britain, America, uh, Unitarians most, most famously, or notoriously, depending on your point of view, uh, who thought that this, turned God into a tyrant, and it also removed any incentive to moral conduct. You know, if, you, if you're saved and, and there's no taking back the choice, just do whatever you want to do. That was a complete misunderstanding of the doctrine, but uh, anyway, that was what was said. But the deeper point to make here is to go back to her expression, freeborn, that she used about the Puritans at the very beginning of this podcast. And so the notion of agency, human agency, as something that God creates in each of us, makes each of us free agents, that became probably the single leading motif of 19th century Protestantism in this country. And we are free agents to sin, we're free agents to do good and go on and on and on it to believe, not to believe, and on it goes. So she's very much a child of her own culture at that moment when she looks back on Predestination as something that's going to really disrupt or nullify the free agency that she wants to take for granted. And that all around her, uh, Methodists, uh, many, many Congregationalists, uh, Episcopalians were also affirming their version of free agency. By the middle of the 19th century, this is just a strong, strong, strong current and although predestination is still embedded in some creeds, like the Westminster Confession, which, in theory, the Presbyterian Church continued to adopt, Congregationalists, uh, it's actually ignored. But there it is. And if her father impressed it on her, all the better. All the worse. All all the more important. More the understandable that she would, uh, in her mature faith, in her mature spirituality, she would say, "I'm going to reaffirm free agency." Can I turn to something else that you, yeah, you mentioned yeah. to me before the b- podcast? You mentioned um, her referencing
0: the Scottish Covenanters. Mm-hmm. Yes, that that was from um, a book by Mary Baker called Retrospection and Introspection, at, at the beginning of which she talks a little bit about her forebears, in this case, her Scots forebears.
1: You quote here... Mrs. Marion McNeil Baker was reared among the Scottish covenanters, so that's the McNeil part, I guess, and had in her character that sturdy Calvinist devotion to Protestant liberty which gave these religiousists the poetic, religionists, the poetic daring, and pious picturesqueness which we find set forth in the pages of Sir Walter Scott, uh, the great uh, Scottish uh, novelist of the early 19th century, and yes, so so there's both the romance of the Covenant of Tears, which Scott captured, and the reality. And the reality is that in mid-17th century Scotland, the Scottish Church purged itself of the authority of Charles I, who was a kind of Catholic tilting king. It purged itself of Catholic-style worship that had been imposed on it. There was a moment of national renewal based on a covenant called the National Covenant, It's a remarkable text. Uh, I write about it at length in my new book and about this process of renewal and these services where people took the covenant and wept as they took the covenant because they were experiencing this kind of cleansing, cleansing of sin, of, of having given in to the king and so forth and so on. And then what happens is a kind of sad story because civil war breaks out in England and the Scots get involved and... Some people in Scotland aren't favoring the Civil War; they want a middle course, and so the National Covenant ceases to be truly national. And then to skip forward, uh, Charles I was executed, and, and then later on, his son came to the throne, and and then the Covenanter movement in North Scotland after sixteen sixty is repressed; they're, they're persecuted, actually by the by the English government, uh, now ruling Scotland as well, and they take refuge in craggy outbreaks in the Highlands and, and try to sustain their faith. It's both a tragic and a heroic moment in Scottish history of people who cling ferociously. They're really like uh, martyrs of the second century. That's what they, they think of themselves as like martyrs of the second century, hanging on to their one true faith. And then eventually uh, the government in England changes and they're treated more kindly. And Scott did write a wonderful novel about them called Old Mortality. Uh, it's quite an interesting novel. It's, I mean, by our standards, it's too wordy, too long, too complicated, do this and that. But he was, not, he was not of this tradition himself. He was an Anglican and a Tory, but he could write with great sympathy about people who are not like himself. And uh, I read this novel about a year ago for the first time, and was quite taken with it, actually. So there's a powerful myth, by myth, I mean story about the Covenanters as these absolutely resolute, fearless, God-fearing people who cling to what they took to be the liberty to choose their own version of religion at great, great cost to themselves. And lots of them are imprisoned, property seized from them, uh, some of them killed by various situations, exiled to horrible places. So it, it is a heroic tradition. You don't hear much about this tradition anymore, do you, in this country? It's nice to know that for Eddie in the 19th century, it was still a living sense of connection to that, to that past.
0: She writes very little about her family background in her autobiography, Retrospection and Introspection. So it's interesting to me that she does select that person and that part of her lineage to, to highlight.
1: Jonathan, I want to, uh, having just published this book Long book. But people tell me it's a good book. You told me that yeah, on Puritanism. So almost on the first page, or maybe maybe on the first page or the second page, I mentioned the term anti-Puritanism. So it's quite striking that as soon as the Puritan movement emerged in England as a offering a plan for how the Reformation in England, the Protestant Reformation, should be carried out, that plan had its enemies. There were opponents of people who opposed that plan, Famously, Elizabeth I, the Queen of England, opposed it, so it couldn't get anywhere. So people look around for a way to stigmatize the movement. So anti puritanism refers to just a catchword for all the different ways of casting this movement into oblivion politically. And the first word that was used was seditious. That doesn't have much meaning to us. It means that these people were not agreeing with the Queen, so they were therefore seditious. But uh, later on, the words grew up like uh, melancholy or... Are, you know, promoting melancholy or despair or being hypocrites. Uh, that's a that's a tough one. Being um, too strict about various requirements, like uh, attending church twice on Sundays and so forth. And then in the 19th century, all these were renewed all over again. Keep being renewed ever ever since. I mean, they, they don't go away. And I single out Hawthorne and Scarlet Letter and uh, as one of the great teachers or promoters of a certain anti-Puritanism. You see that in the Scarlet Letter. So someone asked me, well, is your book going to really change things because it presents a, it's not meant to be, you know, the Puritans are the be-all and the end-all, but it's meant to be a straightforward, honest account of their program, none of which deserves the epithets that have been attached to it. Is your book going to change things? The short answer is that Everyone is interested in authentic stories of what they really stood for. Mm-hmm. And that's what a historian can aim for. Not to sweep away all the errors of the past, but just lay it out using the sources, using using what we have from the 16th and 17th centuries, what they believe. So when I was quoting you know, Thomas Shepard a little while ago and, or Samuel Rutherford, these have all been in print for a long time. These are not you know, mysterious sources. Anybody can look them up. But, of course, people read them with prejudices in mind. You know, Puritans don't say these things, don't say that kind of thing. They don't talk about divine love. Well, actually, they did talk about divine love. You just have to open yourself up to a more expansive and more welcoming account of what's in the sources. And then you discover all kinds of stuff um, that that might be surprising, and that runs contrary to uh, anti-Puritanism. I want to just turn one second here to morality. So, in general, the Puritans were had the same moral code as Anglicans. If you were to open up the Book of Common Prayer from 1552, you'd find, you know, brotherly love, um, repentance, uh, looking after the poor, community over individual, that we regard as standard Christian stuff, protecting the Sunday Sabbath, What's interesting here is to uh, recover a really remarkably robust uh, social ethics that uh, would that we were summoned to observe the same social ethics today. Fairness, mutuality, mutuality in particular, recognizing in each other the presence of Christ, and so therefore tied together, bound together. This is what John Winthrop said famously, knit, knit together in a bond of love, Love meaning uh, divine love, not, uh, not eros. Uh, and uh, on it goes. And then in, in the book that I, you mentioned that I published in 2011, I did a case history of one town, one church, Thomas Shepard's church in Cambridge and the town. And uh, just to, I just want to say one thing about that. So in 1639, a uh, economic depression hit Massachusetts, Prices fell, people were in hard straits, running into debt, and the church in Cambridge, under Shepherd's leadership, says we're going to create a gift fund, a support fund for people in need. So somebody gives a cow, somebody Shepherd gives some cash. Uh, there's a list of these gifts that have been preserved, and then what's remarkable is that the church says, and everyone in the town is eligible to be supported by... I mean, these gifts are for the benefit of everybody in the town. Not everybody in the town is a member of the church. So there's a strong, strong sense of what we might call brotherly or brotherly fellow feeling or responsibility, accountability for others. So the Puritans deserve, leaving aside whether you agree with their theology or not, they... They really are exemplary figures in terms of their sense of public life and caring for each other. And I try to make that point in that book. And that book, and I repeat it in a briefer version in this, in this new book, there's beautiful passages in the prose that these people wrote that any Christian today or any, any thinking person could proclaim. There's political statements, the earliest use of the word democracy in our culture in a positive sense. Uh, the earliest body of laws that frees lay people from all sorts of arcane rules and allows everybody the right to petition the government, which was not true in England Mm. at the time. On and on the list goes of quite remarkable assertions, achievements, aspirations by these people. Mm. That's beautiful.
0: Well, uh, I I cherish it. I I guess we're about to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrim Landing, um, or maybe we already are. Where, where do we stand with that celebration, David? Well, it's, it's, it's December uh, December of
1: 1620 that they come to Plymouth. Well, David, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan, for your wonderful questions and your quotations from Eddie. And
0: Yeah, I, it, it's such a rich subject and um, it was great to start to explore it with you. So again, thanks so much, David. Thank you for listening to part two of Mary Baker, Eddie and the Puritans. As we continued our conversation with Dr. David Hall, author of The Puritans, a Transatlantic History, published in 2019, and also author of A Reforming People Puritanism and the Transformation of Public Life in New England, published in 2011. Just a reminder to feel free to be in touch with us with comments and questions about seekers and scholars by writing to podcast at mbelibrary.org. We're always eager to hear your thoughts. Again, the email address is podcast at mbelibrary.org. And just a heads up about upcoming Seekers and Scholars episodes. They will include a look at the subject of new religious movements and how Christian science may or may not fit within that field of reference. In another We'll revisit the notable musical career of Ruth Barrett Phelps, the first woman appointed as permanent organist for the Mother Church in Boston. Also, we'll be welcoming in members of the Women's Caucus at the American Academy of Religion to learn about their efforts to bring greater attention to the contributions of women in religion, including on Wikipedia. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars.
1: This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2020.